The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, July 13th. I'm Terry Arango with my guests, Beth Lambert and Dr. Nancy O'Hara. Beth Lambert is author of A Compromised Generation, The Epidemic of Chronic Illness in America's Children, which is available for pre-order from Amazon. Beth is a former healthcare consultant and teacher. She taught and coached at secondary schools in Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York City, working closely with students who struggled with learning disabilities. She has traveled extensively throughout the United States, networking and collaborating with other educators through the National Endowment for the Humanities Landmarks of American History and Culture Program. Beth is the Executive Director of Peace, Parents Ending America's Childhood Epidemic, a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to educating the public about the epidemic of chronic illness affecting our youth and helping parents connect with other parents and appropriate health care providers. Dr. Nancy O'Hara wrote the foreword to the book, A Compromised Generation, and she also joins us today. Dr. O'Hara is a board-certified pediatrician who, until January 2010, was the assistant medical director for Defeat Autism Now Physician Training and the physician mentoring director for Defeat Autism Now in Europe. Welcome, ladies. Thank you, Terry. Thank you. Beth, you begin your book describing all the measures that modern-day parents go to to ensure that their children's health is on track. Yet, we've witnessed the sickest generations of children ever. When did the wheels begin to fall off the track, and what are the statistics like for the new waves of childhood illnesses that we're seeing? Right. We, we as parents and pediatricians, go to extraordinary measures to try and keep our children healthy and safe. I mean, we over-sanitize our surroundings. We check on the health and development of our children on a monthly basis. We do all kinds of things that might have seemed ludicrous years ago, but um, we get, we're somehow missing the fact that we have this epidemic of chronic illnesses in children, um, and it's sort of flying below the radar screen. And um, slowly the statistics are starting to come out that there are diagnosed illnesses that are of epidemic proportions right now. And those statistics um, really are just quite shocking when you look at them. And we're looking at 1 in 91 children with autism, and that translates to 1 in 57 boys. Um, You're talking about 1 in 8 children with asthma and 1 in 10 children with ADHD. And, and, you know, seemingly obscure illnesses like celiac disease are now quite common, and they're estimating that it's 1 in 80 children, perhaps even higher than that. Um, 
and even even things you wouldn't even think are in the pediatric population, but um, one in thirty children are now known to have pediatric depression, and and most most every child seems to be affected with some kind of allergies, whether they're environmental allergies or food allergies, or sensitivities or intolerances. So there is no question that we are seeing an epidemic of these kinds of chronic illnesses uh, that is just unprecedented. What about things like diabetes and arthritis? Oh, and those those go right along with it. I mean, um, the numbers are are coming out on other things. Diabetes is going is going to be the next huge epidemic. I mean, everyone's talking about autism right now, but diabetes is is coming out on the radar screen. Um, other kinds of um, of autoimmune diseases like celiac disease and rheumatoid arthritis, things that you didn't used to see that often in the pediatric population, are, again, are all becoming of epidemic proportions. Cancer, obesity. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no question. I mean, Michelle Obama is, you know, taking childhood obesity on, but that's only one tiny piece of the problem. Um, but it is representative of a, of a much larger problem in, in our children. Dr. O'Hara, Beth mentioned the word ludicrous. Uh, her book says that parents of 50 years ago would scoff at our obsessive measures today. I wonder if you could please define health for our listeners and do it without any reference to disease. <laughs> Well, that's a very interesting um, uh, way of looking at it because as physicians, we often talk about health as the absence of disease. But health really should be the ability to live our lives and go about the activities of daily living without restrictions, without fears of of illness or of disease or, or of problems. And our kids with chronic illnesses, whether it be diabetes, arthritis, or... Um, Autism cannot do that, and neither can our families. For either of you ladies, has the nature of childhood disease changed, acute versus chronic, or age of onset of illnesses? I mean, I can talk about it from a sort of what I've researched epidemiologically, but I'm sure Dr. O'Hara has perspective as a pediatrician, but I would just say that um, I think parents used to fear infectious diseases and acute illnesses much more than anything else and didn't really think much about chronic illnesses um, because chronic illnesses were really relegated to an adult population. But it seems now that um, infectious diseases are less of a concern, at least currently, and um, chronic diseases are cropping up in children, chronic diseases that really were meant to be in the adult population, like sinus infections, weren't typically seen in children, but now are quite quite common. So we are in, we've moved from this age of infectious disease, where we're sort of um, concerned or, or afraid of infectious diseases, to the point where we are concerned about both infectious diseases and um, increasingly chronic diseases more more so than infectious diseases. Dr. I would agree entirely, and. I think we in Western medicine have done a, a, a good job of of treating acute diseases, but we're in our training and in our development as physicians, we're just not ready for the onslaught of chronic diseases that we are seeing now, especially the neurodevelopmental diseases, uh, autism, ADHD, um, uh, you know, uh, learning disabilities in general, and that's what's taking over. Um, one in six kids has a neurodevelopmental problem, and that's only increasing, not decreasing. Mm-hmm. And, Beth, why do you think that so many parents report that pediatricians dismiss symptoms and parental concerns? Well, I think for a lot of 
um, a lot of parents, they see signs and symptoms in their children that we would call sort of soft signs of this epidemic. In other words, maybe they don't have a clear-cut case of asthma or a clear-cut diagnosis of autism, but they have signs and symptoms of some kind of inflammatory condition or some kind of um, some kind of illness. But the symptoms are, are things that we would see in a, in a child who's otherwise healthy. So, for instance, um, you know, diarrhea or constipation or swollen glands or, um, you know, periodic fevers. I mean, these are things that a perfectly healthy, normal child can have. But when these things are dis, um, displayed chronically, then we know something's actually wrong with the child um, biologically and, and we need to figure out what's going on. But I think that pediatricians probably see so many things in their office, and, and Dr. Hare, you could talk to this, that um, that these that, that diarrhea isn't necessarily concerning or constipation isn't necessarily concerning in the way that, you know, seeing a child come in with a more severe condition might concern them. And so, and the other thing is parents, you know, we're just over-anxious and we're worried a lot. And so I'm sure pediatricians are used to seeing parents who are just over-anxious and, and sort of reading into symptoms too much. I think the change has come where these symptoms are no longer benign and, and that constipation in a child um, is not necessarily just because a child doesn't eat enough fiber. There's something else more serious going on. Yeah, but over the decades I would contend that parents have always been concerned about their children. So it's, Yeah. Yeah. Dr. O'Hara? Yeah, I would agree. And I think that, that what we see in the healthcare field today is that um, it, we want a quick fix for everything, both as physicians and sometimes as a population. And uh, the chronic illnesses that we see don't have quick fixes. And I think our healthcare field in general had to change in order to be able to deal with more of these chronic illnesses and be able to take more time and go back to the good old history and physical exam. We become so dependent upon tests. And these chronic illnesses don't have the test, the CAT scan or the, or the blood test that's going to diagnose them, let alone um, treat them. And I think what we really need is, is the good old-fashioned history, physical, and time to be able to, to understand, diagnose, and then treat these problems these kids have. Absolutely. And Beth, let's go back to that point about parental concerns being dismissed. So often parents with children with autism are, they're oft alleged to just be looking for someone to blame for their child's condition. But you interviewed a lot of professionals who've also seen a radical change in children over the years. Do these professional, are these professionals looking for someone to blame? Do they have affected kids? No, I, I think that the you know the professionals you're talking about that I interviewed would be teachers, especially veteran teachers and and nurses, school nurses who had been in you know been in their positions for for decades. And these people are not looking for somebody to blame. They're they're actually looking for answers, and they don't even know who to turn to because they had turned to the American American Academy of Pediatrics or the CDC, looking for some kind of explanation from public health organizations that or professional medical organizations to explain what's going on and what they see on a day-to-day basis. But what they're seeing is um, that their jobs have changed. I mean, teachers in the trenches will report again and again that the kids just aren't the same. The attention's not there. The behavioral problems are much more significant. And that becomes difficult um, when you're talking about teaching because sometimes these things have social causes. So you can't, you don't automatically look for medical or physical reasons why children are changing or why they're different. But if you talk to 
nurses, school nurses, I think, are, are the, the greatest resource right now because they will tell you that their job has completely changed in, over the last few decades, and they've gone from, you know, occasionally administering to the, the fever or, you know, the child who has an intermittent problem. Um, but now they're, they're day in, day out managing medications. They're managing nebulizers and EpiPens, and it's a much, much different population, and they have many more children who are very sick and who need care and management on an ongoing basis. So I think that um, if you talk to these professionals, you can you can see from the people in the trenches that things are just drastically different over the last few decades. Yeah, not to mention not to mention the allergies. I mean, we never saw the level of peanut allergies and other allergies that we have today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, school nurses. When when I was a kid going to elementary school some decades ago. The school nurse's office was a really quiet place with cobwebs growing, and occasionally you would go in there and she'd stick a mercury thermometer in your mouth. And, you know, now, as you said, they're doling out nebulizers. And when I was a kid, you'd walk into the the pharmacy uh, and the door would say, popsicles, get your popsicles here. And yesterday I was thinking when I walked into the pharmacy, uh, it said, nebulizers, get your nebulizers here on the front door. <laughs> and I thought, what a change. What a change. You can see the changes in daily life. How do we know that the increased prevalence of autism is not due to diagnostic changes or increased awareness? I I I think think, this is, sorry, Dr. Hare, did you want to go ahead? Well, I was just going to say that I think that that as physicians, um, if we look at my parents' generation, both of whom were physicians, that generation and the generation before them were real diagnosticians when it came to the history and physical exam. We can diagnose things very well in our generation if there's a test or a scan that we can do to help us. But we are no better at the diagnosis of these things than our parents' generation or that before them. And that generation particularly will say there has been a tremendous rise. If you talk to some of the old-time physicians, they will say it's not the same as before. This isn't just a better diagnosis. Right, and I think that also that this debate has been going on for a long time, and I, I do feel finally that it's beginning to be put to bed by some of the epidemiological data that's coming out. In, um, in 2009, the um, journal Epidemiology put out a study um, that had been done by researchers at UC Davis Mind Institute where they looked at all the possible factors that could explain a rise in the prevalence of autism. And um, what they found is that the, you know, change in diagnostic criteria, the earlier age uh, diagnosis or better capture techniques, all these things that people are saying explain the, the epidemic of autism, they actually only accounted for a very small percentage of the total increase of autism um, diagnoses. So, or the, excuse me, the prevalence of autism. So it, it doesn't hold water anymore that this is just a diagnostic um, change or that people are different in, in, in how they diagnose this. Excellent point, and those are recent statistics, too. Okay, we'll pick up with these topics when we come back to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Beth Lambert, author of A Compromised Generation, The Epidemic of Chronic Illness in America's Children, which is available for pre-order from Amazon. Dr. O'Hara needed to excuse herself, so we will carry on with Beth. Beth, why did you talk about inflammatory disorders, uh, allergies, asthma, and immunological-related conditions in your book? Uh, Basically because when you look at all of these diagnoses in children that are of epidemic proportions now, they actually all have the same underlying biological dysfunctions at the root of these disorders. So if you look at what causes autism, you're looking at the same causes of uh, asthma, ADHD, allergies, um, the inflammatory disorders, these things that are um, immunological in in nature. are all they all have the same origins, um, and so it's a very complex explanation as to what's causing these illnesses. But they all have um, the same roots. If you look at causation, yeah, it kind of gets lost in the translation. Um, I don't mean from your book, but in the general public, it kind of mainstream medicine. It kind of gets lost in the translation when some professionals say, you know, autism is all in the head or some such. Right, right. I mean, there's this there is this longstanding um, assumption, on, and really in the on the part of people in the public that 
um, autism and ADHD, bipolar disorder, depression, these kinds of things are neurological or neurobehavioral disorders. What what they actually are, and very few people actually know this, is that they're medical disorders. And if you take these people who have these diagnoses and you do lab workups on them and you start looking for underlying physiological or medical imbalances, you'll find them on the lab work. And so the the key to, to curing these conditions or improving the symptoms in these conditions is addressing those underlying medical problems first. Right. And that really respects the patient, just like any other patient who went in for an evaluation in their physician's office. It's It's disempowering when different groups with different diagnostic labels um, are all said to be separate, but it's, it seems to be empowering, Beth, don't you think, when you find common roots for all of these different maladies? No, absolutely, because if you can find the common roots, you're getting closer to a cure or at least to symptom management because if you don't understand, if you just put these things into diagnostic boxes and then you throw a, you know, a pharmaceutical medication at them, you're not really doing much to help improve that, that person's condition. But if you look at the root causes, um, what you're going to find is that we'd all benefit from um, reducing certain environmental factors in our lives and we'd all benefit from um, improving our diet. Um, so if you can understand what is causing these illnesses, you're getting closer to a cure, and I think that's the most important thing that we can do. Right, and that we have common roots for all these illnesses. Each group, each diagnostic group is not so isolated, cannot be so marginalized. We Together we have power in fixing this. Oh, absolutely. I think that's one of the biggest problems that I see, um, especially in getting people to listen about this epidemic of autism. And people people hear, yeah, there's an epidemic of autism, but you know what they tend to do is they say, well, it's not my child. So that, that autism almost becomes marginalized. But I think that if people understand that what is causing autism is also what's causing asthma or allergies or things that are much more tangible to people who are not affected by autism, that they'll start listening. And I think that um, people will begin paying attention and, and autism will not be a, this marginalized diagnosis anymore. Um, it, it, people need to understand that we're all being affected by this. And you're saying that there's a connection between the immunological or inflammatory conditions and those conditions that are neurological or said to be classified as psychiatric or behavioral. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's no question. I mean, if you look at if you look at people who have diagnoses like autism or depression or bipolar disorder or even schizophrenia, what you'll see is that um, they all have something known as gut dysbiosis and immune dysregulation, which are two biological dysfunctions that um, that are addressable, they're treatable, um, and they are things that are, you know, um, connected to what is also causing asthma or classic classic inflammatory type illnesses or uh, arthritis is another example of a classic inflammatory type illness. So um, they are things that we can address if we understand the, the inflammatory and the immunological mechanism um, and oftentimes that has to do with the, the health of our guts. Yeah, I had heard years ago that even getting a case of food poisoning could somewhere down the road lead to arthritis. So people need to to realize that take a whole systems approach and realize that the bodies, you know, together as an entity, holistic, we're not a bunch of disembodied heads walking around. <laughs> exactly. 
You said in your book that attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or what people call ADHD, has a biological basis. That's right. And, and again, ADHD is one of these diagnoses that people think is all in the head. And, and some people actually even go so far as to say that it doesn't really exist, that it's kind of made up by physicians who are pathologizing our, you know, our day-to-day activities and our, our children, um, when they have bad behavior that they, they, they don't have anything wrong with them. They just need better parenting. But that's actually not true. ADHD does have a biological basis. And again, you can do all kinds of laboratory tests to, to, to see that children who have ADHD look different medically than children who are more um, neurotypical. And some of those things that you'll find is that uh, children with ADHD have gut dysbiosis. Um, they oftentimes have immune dysregulation. They oftentimes have um, food allergies um, or environmental allergies or sensitivities. And, and there is um, a, an inflammatory or immunological component to ADHD. Um, it's just that we're not classically trained to look for that. Physicians aren't looking for it, and psychiatrists certainly aren't looking for it. Well, you spent a ton of time in your book, which I might tell listeners is encyclopedic. It's a huge volume. I felt very uh, privileged to get an advanced copy and just t- tons of great information. You, you kept coming back to the gut. So could you describe the mechanisms whereby the gut, in- gut integrity, the gut environment is so important to children's overall health and development and how a disordered gut can lead to disordered thinking and behavior? Sure. I think, I think the integrity of the gut, the health of the gut is the absolute most critical component of whether somebody is well or not. Um, essentially, when you look at children who have diagnoses, and even those who have sort of the soft signs of this epidemic, whether it's chronic constipation or chronic diarrhea or, you know, periodic fever syndrome or something like that, most of them have something that's known as gut dysbiosis, which is essentially, it means that um, of the trillions of microorganisms that are in your gastrointestinal system, you're supposed to have a balance, a homeostasis of good microorganisms that sort of um, keep out the bad microorganisms. When you have gut dysbiosis, that means you have um, the, the bad microorganisms are um, taking over for the good microorganisms and are in, in, in populations excess, exceeding what they should be. And so why is this important? It's important because... Most of your immune system is housed in your gastrointestinal system. Over 70% of your immune system is located in the gastrointestinal system. And 90% of pathogens enter our body through the gastrointestinal system. Um, And the other thing that, that people don't really understand is that not only is it important for immune health, but the gastrointestinal system is also the, the place where we um, generate and, and manufacture um, very, very important things for day-to-day functioning, such as neurotransmitters, the important brain chemicals that stabilize mood and behavior. And I think one of the most fascinating tidbits of um, information that I learned in this entire journey in writing this book is that 95% of serotonin is produced in the gastrointestinal tract. And that is um, an important brain chemical that's used for regulating mood and behavior. And so if you do not have an intact, healthy gastrointestinal system, your neurotransmitters are going to be affected. Your immune system is going to be affected. Your ability to um, digest and extract nutrients, vitamins, minerals from your diet is going to be affected. And so there's all kinds of downstream symptoms and problems that can occur if your gastrointestinal system is not healthy. Um, and, and, and very few people actually know that, that the, the good bacteria, the probiotic bacteria or the commensal flora that's located in your gastrointestinal system 
they're they're intricately involved with the operations of your immune system. They they're they are responsible for turning immune cells on and turning immune cells off. They can have a regulatory function in terms of making sure that your immune system doesn't um, become overactive. They are important for making sure that your immune system is responsive and 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 producing the the key immune cells that you need to fight an infection. So. Um, I could go on and on and on about this, but there's no question that the gut is central to health. And this is not just, you know, immune health. This is neurobehavioral, um, you know, classical psychiatric health that we're talking about as well. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if I had an overgrowth of a bad player called clostridia, um, how would that translate to my brain? Well, I mean, there's there's no telling because in any... In any one person, um, you know, an overgrowth of clostridia could do any number of things depending on what the other environmental factors are. For instance, how much exposure does that person have to other environmental toxins? But if you have an overgrowth of clostridia, um, you know, first of all, the, the clostridia may be crowding out the good bacteria that are need for vi- needed for vitamin synthesis and, Im- and immune system regulation um, and for protecting the gut barrier um, and pre- preventing underdigested molecules of food from getting through into to the um, circulatory and immune cells. Um, but also, the clostridia themselves, they, they um, are known to release toxins. So there's uh, things called endotoxins or mycotoxins, and these are things that are um, produced by the pathogenic or, or opportunistic bacteria and yeasts that are, are toxic to your body. And so these toxins um, can affect you neurologically. They can affect your immune system. Um, and they're an excessive toxin, toxic burden on your body. So especially if you're a person who's already has a toxic overload, um, having this excessive population of clostridia in your gut is going to burden you further. So um, there's a whole host of things that can happen. Um, none of them are very good. All right. And we will pick up with Gut and Diet when we come back from break with Beth Lambert on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. 
The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. Mark your calendar and set an alarm so you do not miss the highly acclaimed talk show, Holistic Living with Tina Marie and Todd Allen. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon Central, and 10 a.m. Pacific for inspirational, oftentimes edgy discussions on all that life brings our way with celebrity guests, world-famous authors, and everyday people dedicated to sharing positive, uplifting messages. Tina Marie and Todd Allen bring you the very best in talk radio discussions, guaranteed to make you smile. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Beth Lambert, author of A Compromised Generation, The Epidemic of Chronic Illnesses in America's Children, which, again, is available for pre-order from Amazon. And before the break, we were talking with Beth about the gut. And, Beth, let's pick up with the interplay of gut and diet. Okay. Um, I think what's what's important to, to note with diet is that Diet itself is, is, a, is one of the problems that we have with children in, in illness today as they certainly have an in, inadequate diet. But if you have an inadequate diet coupled with an unhealthy gut or a gut that has um, you know, gut dysbiosis like we talked about before, you're talking about a double whammy for that child. It's a, it's a compounded effect. I mean, traditionally, we get all the things we need for good health from our diet, um, and the, the microorganisms in our gut ensure that that happens. I mean, they break down our food into, into you know, they create B vitamins and they um, synthesize nutrients for us. When you don't have those kinds of good healthy foods going into your into your gut, that's one problem. But when you have a dysbiotic gut, you're not able to extract much of anything from that diet. So um, I think that, you know, if you have a good healthy diet and you're doing the best you can to eat fruits and vegetables and organic and all these things, that's great. But if you have gut dysbiosis, you're really not going to be able to extract the things that you need for health and wellness from that diet. So it's of absolute importance that you focus on the health of the gut first. Mm-hmm. That's often the uh, first part of the protocol of, for example, Defeat Autism Now Physicians is healing the gut. Absolutely. So can you please summarize for our listeners some of the common biological dysfunctions, the root of chronic illness in children, just to kind of wrap it up for this Sure. Part? I, again, the, the primary dysfunction is, is this gut dysbiosis, which is the imbalance of good bacteria versus bad microorganisms in the gut. Um, and if you have gut dysbiosis, that can actually cause immune dysregulation because what you're talking about is potentially having a chronic infection, for instance, in your gut. Let, let's say you are exposed to some kind of um, pathogenic 
virus or bacteria and you don't have the ability to fight it off, that can cause immune dysregulation where your immune system would be in a chronically activated state. And um, in addition to that, another common biological dysfunction at the root of all these chronic illnesses is just the state of immune dysregulation in and of itself. And there's lots of things besides gut dysbiosis that can cause that. And when I say immune dysregulation, what I'm talking about is that the immune system is acting out of, um, it's not acting properly. So you can have toxins that can cause immune dysregulation. You can have um, any kind of, um, for instance, electropollution is one of these things that people don't talk about, but it can actually help to dysregulate your immune system. But if you look at the root, and this is a very complex cascade of events, but if you look at the root of all of these illnesses, you're going to find gut dysbiosis and immune dysregulation. And one more thing I would mention, which is not elaborated at too much detail in my book, is, is um, something known as mitochondrial dysfunction. And mitochondrial dysfunction is something that happens as a result of gut dysbiosis and immune dysregulation. So all of these things are sort of at the root of any number of these chronic illnesses, whether it's autism or whether it's asthma. Um, you will find it. So, you know, again, coming to the idea, if you want to find a cure or to improve symptoms in a particular condition, you must address the gut dysbiosis and immune dysregulation. All right. So you're talking about what we need to do. What are the implications if we don't look at these things? What is the economic impact of all of this if mainstream medicine and regulatory bodies stick their heads in the sand? It's a really great question. I mean, right now we're spending $290 billion a year on pharmaceuticals to manage disease in our country. But if we don't take a good, hard look at chronic illness today, we're going to be looking at trillions and trillions of dollars burdening us economically, and that's just in this country. Um, I mean, we're looking at ADHD alone, for instance, is, is estimated to cost between 40 and $100 billion a year just um, if you look at the cost of medication and the cost of education and, and the consequences in terms of crime. Um, but you're also looking at autism. I mean, there's estimates that autism may be as much as 200 to $400 billion a year in, in terms of our, our social costs. Um, asthma is running $20 billion a year. I mean, we are going to be saddled with such an, a ridiculous economic burden in the coming years that um, it, it, it could crush us as a country. So it's time for us to really pay attention to this and see if we can't do more to prevent chronic illness. Right, yeah. Who's going to pay for this if we let it continue? We're not going to have enough people you know, as fit for the workforce. Absolutely. Taxpayers. Absolutely. Social Security, although many people are not very optimistic about the viability of that continuing. So, And still there are people who argue, who contend that all of these diseases – were with us decades ago. If all of these diseases were with us decades ago within the childhood population, why weren't school systems as stretched? Right. I mean, there's no question. You talk to you talk to the administrators in schools, and they understand it. You talk to teachers, and they understand the problems. And so it's just that it hasn't made it to its way to the policymakers yet. Um, and, and usually this, this takes time, so it's a matter of, of waiting or forcing the issues so that policymakers wake up and, and understand the kind of burden that we are currently under and are going to be under. Getting to causation, you talked in your book about the hygiene hypothesis, so, and please explain that, and the vaccination theory. Many people feel that uh, the vaccination uh, program and components have culpability in these epidemics. So do you, if, after explaining those, can you tell us if you see parallels 
between the hygiene hypothesis and the vaccination theory, such as both not allowing normal exposure and reaction to microbes and normal childhood illness towards developing a robust immune system, or, say, artificial hygiene settings and artificial immunity from vaccines. Right. I I think that there is no question that our immune systems today or the immune systems of our children are not developing the way that they were meant to because of certain environmental factors. I don't think it's a simple a simple answer and say we're, we're overly hygienic or we're vaccinating too much. It's much more complex than that. The hygiene hypothesis, which says that we're not exposed to germs enough early on, um, you know, as, as babies and children, um, so that our immune systems don't develop properly, that's been batted around for years where physicians use that as an explanation for why we develop these inflammatory conditions like allergies and asthma. But it's not really holding water because it's, um, it's not complete of enough, uh, not enough of a complete explanation explanation. And the fact that um, vaccines alter, maybe altering our immune systems, that is that may be true, but again, it's not a complete answer. What I think the relationship is, is that on a fundamental level, we are messing with our immune systems from, from birth. And there's a whole variety of things that are doing this. It may be our current birthing practices, our infant feeding practices, the fact that we are destroying our guts with medications and toxins, um, and then passing these, you know, dysbiotic gut germs down to our children. But um, our immune systems are not developing the way they need to. Um, so I don't think it's as simple as um, we're messing them up with vaccines or with being overly hygienic, but um, we, that is certainly a piece of the picture. So you mentioned medication overusage. How does that factor into the epidemic of childhood illnesses? Well, basically, I think I, I personally think that medication overusage over the past, you know, 60 years is probably one of the biggest contributors to this epidemic of chronic illness. And when I'm talking about medication overusage, I'm talking about pretty specific ones. I mean, and the number one one would be antimicrobials, antibiotics, um, but also steroid medications, uh, hormones. Um, you know, things like PPIs, which are proton pump inhibitors or, or medications that are used for reflux, because what all of these medications do is they alter the ecology of our gut. So that gut dysbiosis I've been talking about, well, where does that come from? Why do we have this gut dysbiosis all of a sudden? Well, if you look, if you take, if you go into a room full of people and you ask everybody in the room, how many of you have never had an antibiotic in your life? Very few people will raise their hand. In other words, we have all had antibiotics at one point in our life, and if we haven't taken them personally, our parents might have taken them, they might be in our food or our water, but what the antibiotics do is they basically alter the gut flora. Um, and they're not, again, not the only medications that do it, but they're perhaps the ones that are most potent in their ability to alter the gut. And so why is this important? Because we're talking about multiple generations of people who have destroyed their guts, changed the gut ecology, and then when a baby is born, that baby basically receives the same gut flora um, that their mother has through vaginal delivery. So that baby is predisposed to gut dysbiosis if a mother has it. So it's kind of like this vicious cycle that we've begun by using so many medications, um, and in particular ones that affect gut ecology. Yay. And what's the connection between environmental toxins and autoimmune disease? Well, I think that um, environmental toxins are effect- – we certainly have a more toxic world. There's no question about that. But on top of that, we have um, – 
the, uh, we have a reduced ability to handle these environmental toxins because the gut flora that I've been talking about actually play an active role in detoxifying these toxins when they come into our body. They're very well known. It's been established in the, in the medical literature that gut flora detoxifies certain things like heavy metals, like mercury, for instance. Um, and helps us to excrete it from our body. And the relationship to autoimmune disease in that, I think that this science is, is still emerging, but there's definitely a lot of literature that points to the relationship between exposure to environmental toxins and autoimmune disease. And in 2008, um, an author known uh, uh, named Donna Jackson Nakazawa wrote a book called The Autoimmune Epidemic, where she profiled um, the relationship between environmental toxins and the development of autoimmune diseases like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, these sorts of things. But what we're finding is not just that people are coming down with autoimmune diseases like lupus, but they're also developing autoimmunity that's subtle. So, for instance, there seems to be an, a component of autoimmunity in autism. And so that's one form of autoimmunity that we're seeing that may be a downstream effect of exposure to environmental toxins, especially environmental toxins exposure when we don't have the good gut flora to protect us. Mm -hmm. So in your book, you tie together mercury, autism, vaccinations, gut dysbiosis, and immune dysregulation. Right. Um, I think that... It's it's interesting because in the autism community, there's been a lot of discussion about mercury and the role of mercury, especially in vaccines, and 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 looking at that as a possible trigger for autism. And um, there's no question that that may play a role in certain children. Um, but I, I think that there is um, there is a little bit of a problem in that that's distracted the attention of um, of the mainstream media because. We've said that, well, we've removed the majority of mercury from vaccines. So, you know, as of 2000, the majority of thimerosal was removed from vaccines, which is, you know, there's still some mercury, for instance, in flu shots. But um, people will argue, well, we've removed the, mer the majority of mercury, so therefore um, mercury cannot be in vaccines, cannot be the cause of autism because the rates of autism continue to rise. Well, that is because we have not eliminated the the exposures to mercury in our lives. Thimerosal was only one exposure to mercury. And mercury, again, is a potent neurotoxin. Um, and if you don't have the good gut flora in your body to be able to demethylate this mercury to help your body excrete it, then you're going to experience um, immune dysregulation. You're going to have toxicity in your tissues caused by this. I think um, there's one really great study that was done in mice um, in the 1980s where they took mercury and gave it to mice and they um, had mice um, on antibiotics and mice that were not on antibiotics. The mice that were on antibiotics had higher levels of tissue toxicity and those who were not on antibiotics um, excreted the mercury effectively. So it tells us that the gut flora is very important for helping us manage mercury in our environment. Right. That's a great point. I'm glad you mentioned that. Okay. We'll be back with Beth after the break at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thanks to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. 
More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with the author of A Compromised Generation, The Epidemic of Chronic Illness in America's Children, Beth Lambert. And Beth, you talked in your book about the upper and middle classes moving to the use of commercially heated, heat-processed, manufactured foods, which contain fewer good bacteria than home-preserved foods. But, you know, I've got to ask this. Weren't the upper and middle classes also composed of the stay-at-home moms who could afford the time and money to run out and get all the kids' recommended shots on the very day they were due? Yeah, yes, and I and I do think there's a, a compounded effect here that we're um, oftentimes upper middle class um, um, children are more affected because of their exposures, and that is their access to um, their access to medicines, medicines, pharmaceuticals, their access to full vaccine schedule, but also their access to processed foods. And when I was talking about the upper middle classes moving to the commercially heat-processed manufactured foods with fewer good bacteria, that's really something that happened um, in the 19th century. And what's interesting is if you look back over, you know, through history to see when these kinds of diseases began, I mean, um, certainly we're seeing in the last 30 years this this is taking off, but... Um, if you look at um, allergies, allergies were like the canary in the coal mine for this whole thing. When people started developing hay fever and respiratory allergies, it was in the 19th century when there was industrialization, but also people changed how they ate, and they stopped eating good lacto-fermented, preserved foods that have good probiotic bacteria in them. Um, but at the same time, they also started buying um, foods that were contained, processed con- foods that contained uh, refined flours. Um, and that were, you know, the cakes and cookies and all these kinds of things that are not healthful and actually can, can contribute to gut dysbiosis. Um, but you take that to today, um, and you're absolutely right, though, the people that are, you know, eating probably, um, you know, the processed foods, they're the same people, but now these the upper middle classes are also giving their children um, 
more medications and more vaccines probably than people who don't have access to these things. Um, and they're, they're becoming more chronically ill as a result. You used the phrase perfect storm in your book. Mm-hmm. What did that refer to? Uh, basically, if you want to know what is causing a child's chronic illness, it's an individual etiology. It's, it's that each child has their own specific reason for why they develop a chronic illness. But for, if you look at the entirety of our country and why so many children are sick, it is a perfect storm of environmental factors that is contributing to this epidemic. And I classify this perfect storm um, into five groups. Um, and those five groups are the overuse of medication, um, the excessive um, toxins in our environment, pollution, um, certain cultural and lifestyle factors, for instance, um, that would include things like not getting enough vitamin D outdoors or having um, birth by cesarean section, formula feeding our children. Um, another factor is diet and nutrition. We have over, we're overeating, but we're undernourished. Um, and then the last piece of the perfect storm is that we are probably excessively or improperly vaccinating our pediatric population, meaning that um, we need to reconsider exactly how we're vaccinating and what impact that is having on the immune system. So are these the explanations that we have to offer hope for prevention? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's no question, I think, that... Um, if you take a look at all the things that are contributing to chronic illness in children, if you look at this perfect storm of environmental factors, and if you take out all the things that are um, detrimental to our health in terms of environmental toxins and pharmaceuticals, and you clean up the gut health of mothers and fathers before they have children, you will absolutely be able to prevent this problem from happening. Um, and then if you um, look at children who are already affected and you change their diet, you remove all the oxidative stress from their environment, which includes environmental toxins and perhaps excessive vaccination. If you um, make sure that they're not taking antibiotics and they're not doing um, other kinds of medications that upset their gut flora, um, you change their lifestyles to be healthier, change their diet to be healthier, you can recover children from these illnesses. I mean, I have talked to hundreds of parents who have had some kind of recovery um, whether it be from asthma or allergies or, or what have you, um, or are trying to by using these kinds of approaches. Um, so it's absolutely, it's absolutely possible that you can um, improve health and prevent these problems by addressing these cultural um, factors that are contributing to chronic illness. We have a couple of minutes. Can you share some more specifically some of the hopeful stories of recovery? Um, sure. I mean, a lot of um, I, I put I think maybe five or six stories in my book of, um, of parents who have recovered their children. A couple from autism. Um, I think there's one from who had childhood as, asthma. Um, and um, usually, depending on what the what the particular illness is or what the condition is, um, the the remedy or how to fix it is um, varies in complexity. So to recover a child from autism is, is going to be a very complex story, and I have a couple of those in my book. Um, but it usually involves um, changing the diet, um, or I should say almost always involves changing the diet and using um, measures to reduce oxidative stress, so um, things that taking environmental toxins out of that child's environment um, and doing um, therapeutic protocols like homotoxicology or perhaps chelation or using some kind of energy medicine to regulate the immune system. But it's usually, it's not any, um, usually any one thing. It usually requires a combination of things. But certainly reducing the oxidative stress, 
improving the diet, improving gut function are key, key, key components that um, in all the children that have recovered, they, they usually have those, those pieces. Um, and I think that the people who have recovered have first and foremost focused on gut health and removing the toxic burden um, from their bodies. And there's a variety of ways to do it, so it's, um, you know, to, to give one example um, is, isn't going to do justice to the variety of ways that people recover their kids. So would functional medicine and environmental medicine practitioners be good go-to people for more accurately getting some guidance on how to do this? Absolutely. I I honestly don't think you can have a good recovery unless you have some kind of functional medicine practitioner, like you said, an environmental medicine practitioner, perhaps even a naturopath, somebody who takes a holistic systems biology approach to health and wellness because by if you're a if you're a traditional psychiatrist or a traditional pediatrician who's been trained to use pharmaceutical agents to address symptoms like ADHD that child's never going to really improve their symptoms beyond what the medication can do um, but if you take that child who has ADHD and you go to a functional medicine practitioner or a naturopath or somebody who's looking at this child as a whole complete unit um, and looks at their underlying imbalances, tries to correct their gut dysbiosis, tries to help them detoxify their lives, tries to help them balance their neurotransmitters through supplementation, helps support energy production through mitochondrial supplements, these kinds of things are going to help um, help improve symptoms and, and, and come as close to a re- recovery or a cure as possible. So I absolutely think you're right, Terry. It has to be a functional medicine, naturopathic, holistic type practitioner um, who is, is going to be the one that's going to help our kids. Well, Beth, again, where can listeners purchase your book and also learn more information? Um, well, I, you can get the book pre-order on Amazon Borders, Barnes & Nobles, or through Sentient Publications. Um, and also, um, you can go to my website. It's www.acompromisedgeneration.com. Or you can also go to my nonprofit um, website, um, Parents Ending America's Childhood Epidemic. The website is www.epidemicanswers.org. Really easy to remember. Very good. Well, Beth, thank you for creating this encyclopedic volume that explains so much and offers directions forward for hope. Well, thanks for having me on, Terry. I appreciate it. To our listeners, my guest next week is attorney and CPA Shannon Nash talking about setting up an autism-related charity. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. For questions about this program, please email me at taranga at autismone.org. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Enzymedica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.